0: Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan.
1: My name's Brent.
0: And this episode, roll down the windows, because it's SST 242. The Descendants Enjoy LP. It's a divisive LP. Even <laughs> even for me, I would say it is uh I have kind of a a love-hate relationship with this LP. So I'm really hate? Well, not hate. <laughs> hate is a strong word. I think maybe love grown relationship is probably Mm. more accurate i grown uh with this record but i love it as well so that's that's why it's divisive for me um but to help us navigate through this very cool record we've got a special guest as well
1: yeah we've got brian probart on the show
0: yeah very cool to have a uh, sst employee on the show to give us a little bit more on the SST story. So really looking forward to hearing from Brian. We're super lucky to have him on the show. Yeah. Before we get into some spiels, Brent, I actually need to start by trying to patch things up with you and maybe give you a bit of street cred, okay?
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: So last week you were going through your C section of recent digestions. And uh, these are, you know, your your series of recent <laughs> listens that you want to spiel about which are very cool and but sometimes you know I have this knee jerk reaction when I when I just get like the whiff of hairspray right just, yeah, you know I noticed I, I noticed yeah
1: so it's kind of visceral Are you it's, a junkyard fan now?
0: No. Huh. No no no. But but and I know you've been trying to get me into Hanoi Rocks for I don't know over a decade but yeah. I think uh, I think I was a, a little a little too dismissive of this band that you uh recommended cheap and nasty oh yeah and i and i knew a bit about them because i had looked into them when i guess the most recent time you tried to get me into hanoi rocks i looked a bit into them yeah and i have this visceral reaction because it just like anytime someone wants to get me into something that where i can just smell the hairspray it's like it just reminds me of like oh no man you got to listen to don't don't dismiss pornography. You got to listen to the deep cuts on pornography, or
1: what are that you talking
0: about, or that Mister Big album. That's or shit. I'm. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. But but I'm just saying, like, there's no th-
1: deep cr- cuts in Extreme's catalog, man.
0: I'm just saying. I'm just saying, it's like, all look, garbage. yeah. Well, I'm agreeing with you. I'm just saying though that I have this knee jerk reaction where it's like, I don't want to go anywhere near anything like that. It's really tough, but I did because I felt bad and I want and I wanted to make sure that you're getting all the street cred that you're due I went after the show and listened to cheap and nasty again and uh, I would agree there's something there it's more tipsy gypsy than hair metal for me anyways I don't think I'd ever be a huge fan but I I do think that for folks who are into that type of music there's something there for me though like I'm gonna spend my time on like listening to this new Super awesome garden variety box set that I got versus Cheap and Nasty. But there's something there for Cheap and Nasty. I was too dismissive last week, so I needed to make that up to you.
1: Okay, thanks. Appreciate it. Well, since we're giving street cred, I'll I'll give you a, a little street cred on your handy tip for the Sloan Show, too. I went straight to the merch table and scored a copy of the Hit and Run EP. Just one. I oh, wasn't you weren't. a dick about it. Good, man. Good. How was the show? Oh, it was amazing.
0: Right? Yeah it was amazing. And so now you you're the booker for that that show. Did you get to talk to them? Yep. How how is the tour going? I mean, it looks like everyone is just oh, well they it, it looks it looks like everyone is kind of
1: rediscovering Sloan this year kind of, yeah. right? Well, they're super nice guys. Chris Murphy is like one of the funniest dudes ever. So, yeah. On you know, I said to him like, "Hey, um cuz the show started much earlier than we normally would start a show, right? And I and I said something along the lines of like you know we can they were just chilling backstage right and i said well you know we can bump the sets a little bit if you want he goes oh no 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 we could never do to the, do that to the, our fans they're all paying for babysitters
0: <laughs> it's true it's true man yeah so good so good i it's one of those one i know they played uh two nights in winnipeg it's one of those things where, like, if they came through again in a year's time and they were doing a two-nighter, I'd almost be tempted to get two tickets just because it's so rare that I get to yeah. go out with my main squeeze and have a good time. And it's like, it sounds good. People are cool at the venue. You know, it's so rare.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I saw people I haven't seen in since the Smalls reunion, you know? <laughs>
0: <laughs> there's, a, there's a Canadian deep cut for you there, too. Yeah. Well, hey, that's great. I'm glad you went to the show, and you picked up a copy of that hit and run EP. Um, it's wicked, and it seemed like they're kind of doling out a few copies per show. So I think they know that the the mega fans still need it, and yeah. they're not they're not putting like all 20 copies out at each show. So again, just shows how cool people the Sloan guys are, right?
1: Yeah, I texted you that I overheard somebody ask the person selling merch if they could get a special deal, if they bought one of each of the vinyls. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> uh, <ugh.
0: laughs> anyways, anyways. Hey, uh, can I uh, then head into some legit spiels, man? Mm-hmm. Long overdue, Brant, but I don't know who's on first.
1: Watt's on base.
0: Watt is on base. Here we go. Long overdue. I've got a few. I think I've got six or seven, one of which I mentioned not too long ago, I gotta just add to the list that Larry Mullins and Mike Watt TVI seven inch. That's gonna come out on ORG for Record Store Day in April. But also, uh, either recently released or coming up soon, or newly discovered by me. One I wanted to mention is this uh, this record, Mike Watt and Charles Plymell live in Fishtown, Philadelphia, recorded in. August of 2008. This is on Feeding Tube Records. Released. It's going to be released March 31st, so it'll be out, I guess, kind of shortly after this episode airs. Digital only so far. Charles is an American poet and novelist. And for this set, Watt reads some of his poems, and then he works the bass while Charlie lays down some words. It's a cool one. Another one that is uh, is coming out soon here, or I think it'll be out by the time this episode airs, is Spirit of Hamlet's debut record called Northwest Hamaretto. This is out, yeah, March 17th on Broken Sound Records and Tapes. This is a long-distance collab between Watt Kawabata Makato from Acid Mother's Temple, Scotty Irving from the Clang Quartet, and songwriter benji johnson this is a psych funk experimental noise free jazz set and you can pick this up on vinyl as well
1: hey i have to go to montreal in a month for work and i bought a ticket to see acid mother temple they're going to be there when i'm in when i'm in town
0: oh cool man yeah there you go sweet watt tie-in as well yeah i think i may have mentioned this last year during our sst windup but it's going to be released soon is the MSSV Human Reaction LP out on Big Ego Records. This is Mike Bagetta, Watt, and Stephen Hodges. I know that one's going to be good. There's also a like a single that has been released recently by this combo called White Feathers. The song is As Always. It's a digital track only so far, I think. It's a trio from the UK and Czech Republic. Some of their press makes it sound like they're actually just from Prague, but some of it sounds like they're members from the UK. I couldn't really figure it out. It's kind of ambient indie rock, cool vocals, cool piano on it. Watt is kind of the guest bass player on this track, as always. And it's from their forthcoming album, Love is a Death Away. It's a cool track. It's not really music that I'm super into, but when I listen to it and you can hear Watts bass and it's mixed prominently so you can hear Watt. it's still pretty cool yeah and then finally this one has I think this one has been out for a while but I just discovered it and I discovered it on Watts hoot page he has kind of like a a news feed of all of his releases this one's out on Corwood Industries and it's a Watt and Jandek or Yandek Uh combo this one is uh, called, it's a CD, and you can also get a DVD called Houston Saturday. This was recorded during the Houston Free Press Summer Fest in June of 2013. Do you know if it's Jandek or Yandek?
1: I've always said Jandek. I'm yeah, me- pretty sure that's how they pronounce it in the documentary as well.
0: Yeah, I think so too. I haven't seen the documentary. What What's that about? There's a Jandek yeah, we documentary. we talked about it, I think. Ah, man, I must have missed that as a on my to-do list. I'll have to check that out. Anyways, Jandek, of course, is lo-fi folk singer Sterling Smith. And you can uh, get this either CD or DVD set from 2013 where Watt is accompanying him. And it's pretty, it's pretty free. It's pretty cool. And uh, you can actually watch the set on YouTube as well. So check that out. If you want to pick up a physical, though, Go to Corwood Industries, which looks to be Jandex like main kind of distro vehicle. It is, yep, yeah, and that's it, man. I guess that is uh, six for Watts on base. Right on. That's all I got, man. Are you gonna deal me some recommends?
1: That's right. <laughs> you ready? Of course, man. All right, uh, Dove. Wrecking Ball on Lost and Found 1992. So this band ended up on my radar because they have an amazing song on that DC Rocks comp on Olive Tree Records we talked about during one of our HR episodes. We talked about this band, Dove. Yep. Uh, first off, on the Lost and Found front, when the label came up on wh- whichever episode that was, uh, we talked a little bit about Lost and Found being a weird label as far as releases go. And yeah,
0: like is like... Is it legit or is it not legit? It's hard to tell. And yeah. they re- and they repackage stuff.
1: Yeah. So we heard from uh, Javier from the excellent Where It Went podcast about that specifically. This was, you know, whenever, last year. Um, he, he said to me, we interviewed Joe Foster from Ignite. Um, and if you listen to that show, you know Javier was heavily involved in early 90s Orange County hardcore. Um, like he saw Ignite's first show, for example. Anyways, Javier goes on, and he made it seem like putting out CDs on Lost and Found was a necessary evil for bands interested in touring Europe in the 90s. Mm. Some of the releases were authorized, but then the label would basically have its way and take liberties by releasing things without approval. Sometimes one band member would agree, and then the label would just keep pumping things out without anyone else's knowledge and without paying anyone. Mm. Um, Yeah. He suggested listening to episode fifty-four of the Where It Went podcast um, to get kind of that's the Ignites Past Our Means EP episode to get a little bit more info, possibly on on Lost and Found.
0: That all makes sense as it relates to you know the various Lost and Found releases that I've collected over the years. Some seem like it's a it's a legit release or like a a European version of a north american album and then sometimes it's like you just released the same thing twice under a different name yeah. you know yeah. it's weird it's weird
1: so this dove band were from dc obviously tons of crazy connections to other bands vocalist eric langdamo i believe is how you pronounce it was in double o and red sea bassist ben pape went on to play in the four horsemen uh, and guitarist Stuart Kaysen was in The Meatman and later this glammy band called Smash Fashion. And drummer Peter Moffat was in all kinds of bands Wool, Government Issue, Burning Airlines, Foxhall Stacks, most recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, this band, Dove, apparently won a $20,000 prize in a, like a Battle of the Bands contest held by Columbia Records in 1986 and recorded this kind of amazing album that went unreleased until 1992. It's a weird album ranging from melodic hardcore uh, with some serious shred guitar. It's gothy at times. Some of it sounds like late 80s SNFU, like Mm -hmm. If You Swear You'll Catch No Fish era. There's some stuff that's like straight ahead pop music. It's all really good, but not exactly like a cohesive sound. Which I'm all in on, uh, but I can see why this would have been a challenge to get a label behind it, just from a marketing standpoint.
0: Yeah, I got into it through DC Music Connections, and it, it's a bit too metallic for me at times, but I do love that record.
1: Yeah. Okay, the next one is Dragnet, Life in General, 1988. Oh, cool. Yeah, one of your recommends, I believe. Whitty, yeah, man. Whittier Records? Um, I, I think is how it came up. We may have discussed Whittier on a Grant Hart episode. Engineer Tom, Her- Tom Herbers had a garage band called Bad Trip with a single on that label. Uh, they were a Minneapolis-based label. Dragnet were all, also from Minneapolis. You know, some members of Man-Sized Action, God's Favorite Band. Cool band, good songs. There's, Is there a Minneapolis sound? Is there a Minneapolis sound? I don't know. That's my question.
0: Oh, I... Sometimes, yeah. I think I think there are a few Minneapolis sounds, you know. I yeah. think there's I think there's some real just like trashy rock. I think there's some punkier stuff. I think there's some noisier stuff. So not a single sound okay. in my view.
1: Well, maybe even some New Wind vibes on this dragnet.
0: Totally, the production value. I yep. would say.
1: All right, Ryan, your weekly uh, tipsy gypsy fix here for you. <laughs> Oh, God. All right. Uh, Dogtown Balladeers, Antique Wine and Roses. Self released 1996, following two EPs. Um, This is right in my sweet spot. Full on, uh, you know, uh, Stones, Faces, Choir Boys. Um, In fact, they do uh, the cover of Chuck Berry's Sweet Little Rock and Roller, but in Rod the Mod style. It's so killer. I think I, I heard about this band in Sammy Yaffa of Hanoi Rock's book, actually. He produced it. They were a New York band about eight years too late, actually. Um, came out in in 96, but I just love it. And,
0: wow, that's pretty late for that type of music, hey? Yeah, for sure. Wow. And Antique Wine and Roses? Yeah. Is is there a more Tipsy Gypsy album <laughs> name of all time?
1: Yeah, I know, hey?
0: Holy, if they should just call it like Antique Wine, Roses, uh cowboy hats and scarves.
1: Yeah. Well, you might like this. This is more like black crows. You know, it's like that band mover almost.
0: Oh yeah. I like that.
1: Okay. Uh, the next one is defunct live at channel zero 2016 ESP disc is the label. This is some of the most furious funk rock you could ever hear. Joseph Bowie was the main man. He kind of came up in the, in the new no wave scene, but the musicians are, are far too proficient. Uh, Melvin Gibbs was, was in the band for a while. Vernon Reed was in the band. They released a studio album as recently as 2015, so not sure what the status of the group is. The playing on this album is just nuts. All the players have just played with so many different famous musicians. I won't get into it all, but the heart at the heart of it all was Joseph just going off on trombone, howling like James Brown. This is awesome stuff.
0: Hmm. ESP Records? ESP Disc. ESP Disc, okay. Uh,
1: The next one is Death Penalty. Self-titled 2014 on Lee Dorian's uh, Rise Above Records label. This is the band Gaz Jennings formed after Cathedral split up, and it's just riff-tastic doom metal. (laughs) 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 I wish they would have done another album, but they didn't. Uh, The next one's Distorted Pony. Instant Winner, 1994, Trent Syndicate nice yeah i don't know a ton about this band it's noise rock kind of in the big black variety uh did their
0: first their first record was on Bomp.
1: i know yeah it's crazy do they come up in noise rock circles Ryan? you're you're way more in tune to the to the noise rock scene yeah for sure yep i believe the band was split up by the time this came out um they got back recently and and played some shows not sure what their status is our podcast pal Eddie Rivas, who um, was in the killer band Leopold. Leopold. Yeah. Uh, He was, I believe, in this most recent incarnation of Distorted Pony. Um, Maybe he's listening and he'll clue us in to what the status of the band is.
0: Yeah. I mean, they had a double LP live set released a few years back. I'm pretty sure I mentioned it in one of our yearly windups because I picked that one up.
1: Yeah. This is a great record, Instant Winner. It's perfectly noisy, it's dark, almost industrial vibes at times, lots of feedback. Mm -hmm. It's good. Okay, Dead Trend, False, Positive. Um, 2013, legendary hardcore band out of Portland, Maine, featuring the Blitzkrieg drumming of our podcast pal, Seth Stina. Here's a lyric I pulled out from the song, No Sympathy. Your house has three bedrooms. I live in a room with three dudes. Your boss gave you a promotion. My boss wears a goddamn name tag. <laughs> <laughs> 20 songs in 23 minutes. Dead trend. Yo. The Dickies. Here's a couple for you, Ryan. The Dickies. Oh, Idget come on. Yes. Yep. Uh, 1994 Triple X. Kind of an unsung classic from the band. Um... I think they kind of get unfairly lumped in as a joke band, and you're actually going to hear a Dickies reference in the later on in the episode in reference to them being a joke band. Um, I saw this thing where, where Leonard Graves called this their best album that no one's ever heard. And I, hmm. I would kind of agree. It's got classics like Make It So, Just Say Yes, Toxic Avenger, and of course, their cover of Pat Smear's Golden Boys.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've got all the Dickies, man. I do think they get lumped in with some sort of jokey bands um, because, you know, playing small guitars, costumes on stage, um, even I think like their association with killer clowns from outer space kind of, you know, as cool as I think that is, I also think it may have, you know caused them to be lumped in as kind of like a joke band or a prop band maybe or something like that. But I think that that's
1: totally unfair. Okay, uh, the other one that's, I know you're a huge fan of this band too, Ryan, and that's The Digits. Oh, yeah. Hornet Pinata, 1990 Touch and Go. You're a way bigger fan than I am. So where does Hornet Pinata stack up?
0: All of their records are amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, It's one of those records that was not easy to find though at least where i grew up in the 90s. Yeah. You could find Fizz Job or some of the later ones like Kesarosara like way easier than that one. Yeah. Little Little Miss you could find that one. Um, for some reason Hornet Pinata was not as easy to find. It does have, i believe the song Killboy Powerhead on it, which Sure does. The, the Offspring covered? Yep. And i think that they got a bit of street cred but by the time that the offspring did that song, they were done, and Rick was in Gaza Strippers by that time.
1: Yeah, here's a band that should re- reunite and do a new album and tour. Um, it's kind of a shame that Rick Sims isn't fronting a rock band these days because he's so good at it. Like you mentioned, the Gaza Strippers. I've never saw the Digits, but I did see the Gaza Strippers, you yep. know, four or five times, and they were amazing.
0: And uh, the Super Suckers album with uh, Rick Sims, right? Yep. Amazing. Which one is that one? Smoke a Hell?
1: I think it's Sacrilicious Sounds, isn't
0: Sacrilicious, it? yeah, yeah. Yep. Forgot um, about yeah. that. Yeah, and you know, I like the really early digit stuff too, because it's, it's actually, you know, they're still kind of developing their sound, and there's a bit of post-punk in their very, very early stuff, and then they just turn into a full-throttle rock band, you know?
1: Yeah. Okay, the last one is... Diamanda or Diamanda Gallus, I'm not sure how you pronounce her name. The litanies of Satan. I mainly know her from, um, you know, Rollins always mentioning her and get in the van. Mm. That's why, you know, I kind of sought her out. I bought this album on cassette because of, because of hearing her name in that book. And it's one of the, just the gnarliest albums I've ever heard. I listen to it like once a year, which is plenty. Um, it's her debut from 1982. Although she released an album previous to that one uh, with Henry Kaiser. Hmm. Yeah, I, I couldn't even begin begin to describe the sounds on this this record. It's two songs. One of them's 12 minutes long. One 17 minutes long. It's got tape loops, electronics, and her completely over the top vocals, which make like Yoko, Yoko Ono sound like mainstream pop by comparison. <laughs> <laughs> It's wild stuff.
0: Yeah. That sounds wild. Yeah. Leave it to Henry to, to gravitate towards something like that.
1: That's it for me, man.
0: All right. Well, like I said, man, roll down the windows. Let's do this.
1: History lesson part one.
0: All right, Brent, where do we want to start with the descendants? One of our most beloved bands of all time on the show and for our listeners.
1: Yeah. I did a little rundown here, Ryan. Um, and I kind of, you know, the history of the Descendants and SST is just all jumbled up, right? Because they were reissuing a lot of the new Alliance stuff. And so I did a, I did a little thing. So anybody listening to this, like for the first time, <laughs> that's never gone back and listened to the other ones, maybe like in the future, I I did a little Descendants in order. This is the order you should listen to the episodes, our episodes, our, our episodes. Okay. Yep. I got you. Yep. Yep. And it'll give you, it's interesting that we had Brian on this episode because also you'll hear a lot of our other guests that we did in relation to Descendants show actually worked for SST. So when you go through these, you kind of get a little bit of the the history of the Descendants and a picture of, of SST. You'll see yeah. what I mean here.
0: Yeah. Well, this is good because I think our first episode was all, and that's probably not the first one to no. listen to. Yeah. Yeah.
1: No, so you should listen to episode 144, Bonus Fat, and that way you can get the, that has Ride the Wild on it, so you can start at at the beginning of The the Descendants. Mm -hmm. But then you should skip ahead to episode 212, The Fat EP, where we had Pat Hoed on the show, who worked, he worked at SST.
0: That is a killer interview, man, and what a nice guy.
1: And then you should listen to episode 142, Milo Goes to College with Bill Stevenson. right. And then you could probably skip ahead to episode 145, Two Things at Once, with Mugger, who obviously was one of the owners of SST. Yeah. Then go back to episode 143 and do part two of our interview with Bill. That's the I Don't Want to Grow Up episode. Then you should listen to this one, episode 242, Enjoy, with uh, Brian Probard, who who worked at SST, obviously, as you're going to hear. Then go all the way back to episode 112 and listen to the All record <laughs> with Milo. <laughs> <laughs> then episode 163, Livage with Stefan. Oh, yeah. 205, Hall If you want, you could pepper in episode 213, 213, Program Annihilator 2 with Jim Ruland. And then episode 259 is going to be summary. That's still to come. So, Ryan, if you're so inclined, you can now listen to all of these episodes in in order, more or less, that they they originally came out. Hopefully get a fairly comprehensive overview of the first half of the Descendants' journey, uh, the New Alliance Records SST era, plus some great insight into the label also with Pat Hoed, Mugger, Jim Ruland, and now Brian Probart.
0: Yeah, and don't forget, I believe we touched on the Descendants for the Uh, Cracks in the Sidewalk and Chunks
1: episodes Oh shit, right, yeah
0: Yeah, yeah, but now I want to go back and listen to all those episodes in that order because that's some pretty that's some dang good Descendants coverage
1: Yeah Yeah so yeah, Brian uh, was in sales and marketing at SST circa 89 to 94. Uh, he and I have been talking for a while, and he actually suggested this album because uh, the SST SST reissue was one of the first things he worked on at the label. And he was also a huge Descendants and All fan, which, which you'll hear in the interview. So we've got that coming up in a few minutes, but first... Um, we'll do a little look at the enjoy era descendants. And I pumped Milo for info on this era and the tracks and you just wait. Like he just delivered the goods big time. Nice. Yeah. So it's another new lineup of the band. I know we've talked about Ray Cooper before, for sure on episode 53 swas your future. If you have one Yep. Ray was guitarist along with rich Ford during that era of swa and also on the, I don't, want to grow up episode Um, he had replaced Frank Nevada on guitar in descendants for that album so it basically goes like this Milo goes to college like literally Milo went to college from 83 to 85 and the remaining descendants guitarists Frank Nevada bassist Tony Lombardo and drummer Bill Stevenson recruit Ray in as vocalist Ray preferred playing guitar and would occasionally switch to guitar when Milo made visits to Los Angeles and they would play some shows. Here's what Milo told me. Bill met Ray at El Camino College where they both attended after high school. Since I was already down in UC San Diego, Bill needed a new singer and asked Ray if he would sing. This would have been late 82. Ray did some shows singing with the band in late 82 and early 83. Then he decided he'd rather play guitar. At this point, I would come up from San Diego for occasional gigs. There was at least one show with him on second guitar, and Frank on the other. Tony, Bill, and Me. I'm thinking the Me Casita gig in Torrance, with Husker Du, Black Flag, and Red Cross. There may have been a couple of others in 83. Then Milo goes on, Ray and his friend Greg Cameron were going to punk shows in 82-83 and getting to know the SST crew, like Gin and Dukowski. So when Dukowski started up Swa in 1984 or thereabouts, both Ray and Greg joined on guitar and drums. Then Ray quit Swa to do Descendants full-time in 85. And I believe, Ryan, we touched on this when we chatted with Greg on episode 157. Yep. So in 83, Bill joins Black Flag and puts Descendants on hold, and around March, April 85, while Black Flag is recording Loose Nut, Milo and Bill decide to revive the band. While Bill was off touring with Black Flag, Frank, Tony, and Ray also jammed and played a show, at least one as The Ascendants, but uh, Frank Nevada at some point sets fire to his gear and moves to Oregon. Bill, Milo, Ray, and Tony record the Grow Up album, But when it came time to tour in July of 85, Tony decides to quit the band, um, a decision he's called the biggest mistake of his life, and that's when Doug Carrion comes in. Here's Milo again. Doug went to Miracosta High, one year behind Bill and I. Bill was in speech class with him, so he knew Doug better than I did. So I re-listened to this great interview with Doug uh, this happened a few years ago on the One Life, One Chance podcast. And he mentions this, he, the speech class thing. He's talking about how Bill would come in to the to class straight from fishing and bring like all his fishing gear and give sp- his speech would just be about fishing. Like he would have, you know, whatever, his rod and we- reel or something like as a prop. Yeah. <laughs> Which is just one of the most amazing things, you know, that I've ever heard. Uh, and that's a great listen, by the way, that, that episode. Doug, he just has this manic energy. I I can't even imagine what those early Descendants tours must have been like with them all just zooming on coffee.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Even when you see footage of Doug in Field Day these these days, Yeah. you know, decades later, he is going just wild on stage.
1: Yeah. He talks about joining Dag Nasty, uh, in that episode and it's just excellent. Totally sent me down a Dag Nasty rabbit hole this week.
0: Mm, I've been in a Dag Nasty rabbit hole for 30 years. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a quick spiel out of this book, Triple X Fanzine. Okay. And this one, of course, is the uh, the book, the collection of the Triple X Fanzine, 83 to 88 by Mike Gitter and this came out on bridge 9 in 2017 and Mike is asking the asking the band about their new lineup okay for, and this this would be like and I think this is you know maybe around the time that they're writing for enjoy I think and on tour not sure about that but it says here uh, here's Mike Gitter how would you compare the band now to the band of two years ago and here's Milo We're all a lot more compatible with each other and we're all good friends with each other to boot. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. That's something I don't know about, but I feel a hell of a lot closer to everyone in the band. Musically, we're coming into our own kind of fun music. Personally, I'm trying to get out what's inside me more now than ever. Here's my getter, so it's a maturation you feel? Milo, definitely. At this point, it's really changing. We have a new songwriter in the band, who is contributing really heavily. Here's Bill. With the next album, the songwriting all comes out of the entire group. In practice, Dougie will jam a bass line, and we'll all start playing along, and Milo will throw in some words.
1: Yeah, I mean, they had a knack for just, or were just lucky of getting other songwriters into the band, and Doug talks about that in the interview, how open Bill and Milo were to his contributions as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay, uh, Milo goes on here um, about uh, you know Tony leaving and, Bi- and Doug coming in. Bill wanted to tour after we made I Don't Want to Grow Up, but original bassist Tony couldn't tour. He had recently become a mailman for UPS. Turns out Dougie had been playing bass in local bands like Con 800, Anti, and this cool little known outfit called Insect Cattle. And their EP has come out in the last, I don't know, five years or so on, uh, water under the bridge on cassette, uh, a tape, which you gifted me, Ryan. And yeah. I, li- I listened to it this week. Yeah. It's pretty wild.
0: Yeah. Enjoy your gift.
1: <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so this is Milo again. So Bill asked him if he'd be the new guy and go on tour. And Doug said, yes. Um, uh, and on that podcast episode, Doug talks about how Bill left a note on his door like back in Hermosa or whatever, asking him to to join the band.
0: Yeah, well, if you're not at your rotary phone at home, <laughs> how, are you, how else are you get to get in touch with people?
1: That's right. Uh, Doug, Ray, and Bill practiced in Doug's garage for a few months while I finished out my junior year at UCSD. Then we hit the road. During these practices, Doug would bring in riffs that were then arranged into several songs on Enjoy, including the title track, Sour Grapes, and Days Are Blood. And I asked Milo if they sent him tapes from the practice pad, you know, so he could work on his lyrics while he was still in school, and he said no. They, he worked on the lyrics once he joined up with the band.
0: Ah, okay. He was coming into it totally cold.
1: Yeah. The Enjoy album was recorded in March-April of 1986 at Radio Tokyo in Venice by Ethan James and his, his assistant Richard Andrews. And we've seen them both many times on the show. Uh, the band was obviously happy with the results. They brought Richard Andrews back for like the ne- uh, the next record, All, and then again, also for All Roy Says, All Roy for Prez, and All Roy's Revenge. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a memorable scene with him in the filmage movie where he talks about like the culture shock he experienced working with this, the Descendants for the first time on this record. Yep. It's pretty hilarious. And here's something I don't think we've seen before, Ryan. The album was jointly released through New Alliance Records and Restless Records in July of 86. Mm-hmm. Not sure exactly how that came about, although um, you know, we, we haven't done a deep dive into New Alliance Records. We've obviously run into it many times on the show, and I'm not sure we've seen any other co-releases with Restless. It originally came out on LP and cassette as New Alliance Records 29, with two less songs than are on the SST reissue. And it also came out overseas on LP on Enigma Europe, Enigma being the parent label to Restless.
0: Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, a lot of times you hear it referenced as Enigma instead of Restless.
1: Yeah. New Alliance also released a promo single right before the album came out, with Enjoy and Wendy on side one and Green on the B-side.
0: New Alliance Records, E29, and no Dead Wax, as far as I could tell. On the single. Yeah, on the single.
1: Yep. Okay, here's a little tourage. So uh, when Doug joins, sometime in July 85, they hit the ground running. Uh, July 18th through September 14th, 60-plus shows with bands like The Dead Kennedys, Victims Family, SNFU, Lawndale, Raw Zebra, and Painted Willie, Circle Jerks, Meat Puppets, um, Camper Van Beethoven. And then after a short break, they go straight into the bonus winter 86 tour, December 20th, 85 to March 22nd, 86, 80 plus shows just insane. Yeah. And, and what a difference in the bands they they were playing with by this point, DRI death sentence, a show with suicidal tendencies, Beowulf and Excel in Los Angeles would have with, which would have just been totally insane. Ugly Americans, um, it's, it's weird, this is just the rise of Crossover and, and they got billed with, with lots of those kinds of bands.
0: Yeah, well it's actually interesting to point that out in terms of who they toured with because there's some serious metal riffage on yep. this record, right?
1: Yep, there is, and you, you hear that come up in a lot of people's criticisms of this album that it's, it's too metal or something. The Enjoy tour, Ryan, when this album came out starts at the Metro in Chicago opening for Social Distortion on June 27th Uh, 86, literally right as the album's coming out. Many of those shows are with Dag Nasty as support, covering 34 states in three Canadian provinces, Quebec, Ontario, and then they dip back into British Columbia later on. Mm -hmm. Um, The tour poster just has a dude on a toilet, and it's called the Just to Clear the Air. And And then it says, Get a whiff, the Descendants Summer Tour Explosion. The last show on that tour was at Fender's Ballroom in Long Beach, opening for seven seconds, along with Aggression and Doggy Style, who Doug also played with later on. Oh, and Rigor Mortis was also uh, on that show. Here's Milo on what happened next. He goes, My recollection about Doug and Ray quitting is that we had just finished a really long tour in summer 86, over two months, and over 60 shows, so I'm sure there was a burnout factor. But also, they were expanding their musical interests into more new wave influenced punk, and perhaps thought the Descendants' format was limiting their creativity. They talked about forming a fun punk band in the vein of Toy Dolls or the Dickies, which Doug kind of did by joining a band called Doggy Style. He would later join Dag Nasty a couple of months later. Ray left music after the Descendants and is now a computer scientist. Here's what else he said about touring. Um, He goes, Enjoy was released early summer of 86 and I had just graduated so I didn't have to take any time off. I was done. I had actually taken one quarter off early in 86 to finish the grow up tour. That would have been, you know, that extended uh, bonus winter tour or whatever they called it. Yeah.
0: 80 dates or whatever.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I technically wasn't completely done with my degree because I had gotten an incomplete in this stupid course on Wagner. There was a final paper due worth 100% of the grade that I just couldn't write. All I learned from that class was that Wagner was an, was a racist anti-Semite, so I just didn't have any oomph to get it done. The te- oh,
0: that's, is that like Wagner, the I composer? I guess so. Yeah, yeah guess Wagner. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: the teacher said... She'd pass me if I just submitted something by the end of summer, but I but I was off on tour and wanted to never think of Wagner or Wagner again, so I did nothing and took the F. Punk rock ruined my GPA. <laughs> so after uh, Doug quits the band, he's he's played in tons of bands, Post ascendance, including uh, Pale, Six Degrees of Right, For Love Not Lisa, Ultrahead, Cottonmouth Kings, Humble Gods. Uh, he's done tons of soundtrack work. Uh, he had a roots project called Doug C. and the Blacklisted. Most recently, of course, the excellent Field Day band. Um, Le- uh, Ray later on reunited with Tony Lombardo in the band Spiffy, whose secret 7 Inch uh, you gifted me, Ryan.
0: <laughs> yeah, I gave lots of stuff away. To what you. a
1: good guy. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, how else am I going to get you to put up with me?
1: You're right. Also, if you head over to Matt Crane's Bandcamp page, you can hear the project that Matt, Joey Butts, and Ray Cooper had, circa 92, 94, called "Locomotive," which is super cool.
0: Oh, I've never heard of that. Yeah. What's that? What's that like?
1: Uh, it's kind of poppy punk. We've talked about it before. Hmm.
0: God, man, we've been at this so long. That's twice in this episode where it's like, I've never heard of that, and it's like, yes, you have. <laughs>
1: a few other things I found Ryan I found this uh, cool piece from the LA Times by Jeff Spurrier dated January 5th 1986 he's hanging out with the band at their headquarters and this is post grow up but pre enjoy so I found it pretty interesting it's dated January 5th 1986 every time we step out this door we come back complaining says descendants guitarist Ray Cooper 21 nodding toward the open door, doorway of the band studio. You go out there and you're corrupted. In here, it's all clean and virgin. Clean and virgin are hardly the words most people would use to describe the Lomita hangout of one of L.A.'s seminal hardcore speed thrash acts. But Co- Yeah. <laughs> but Cooper would know. After all, the two small rooms are not just a place to practice and conduct business, they're also home for Cooper and two other descendants. This is Descendants Central Headquarters, a never-never land that functions as a combined clubhouse and sanctuary for the band. You make your own rules in here, says bassist Doug Carrion, 21, sipping on a giant cup of coffee, the Descendants' drug of choice. Everything is everybody's. We have three people's clothing on one shelf, and everyone takes whatever he wants. We share. In here, it's real good. Out there, everybody has their own little area. Such a distinction is of prime importance to the descendants, despite the name, it's friendship, not family, that rates with the band, especially for its founder, drummer Bill Stevenson, 22. Friendship and trusting people is the most important thing, not art or money or fame, he says. That's the the foundation this band is based on, that we're four brothers, not four businessmen. Stevenson wasn't always so full of brotherly love. He admits that just a few years ago, during the first incarnation of the band, he was a hard person to deal with. I was stubborn and selfish, he says. I was creative and wrote a lot of songs, but I was real overbearing, telling people what to play and how to play it. I was so unreasonable. The music was good, but that's no reason to be mean to your friends. And friends, he adds, is what makes one band's music different from another's. If I break up with my girlfriend and get another one, that would change the sound of the band, he notes. You are who you associate with. And then it kind of goes through the band's history a little bit. It says, among other things, earlier last year, New Alliance has released Bonus Fat, a collection of old Descendants recordings that seem to signal a continued interest in the band. That was followed in August by I Don't Want to Grow Up, an all-new LP displaying more of the distinctive songwriting that has always separated the descendants from the family of generic speed thrash rockers. (laughs) I like this part here, because I think this kind of signals the change in direction here that they had on Enjoy. This is Bill. I would hate to think of locking myself into a particular style. A fan that's worthwhile, a fan you'd want to be your friend, wouldn't think like that. They'd think, is this another album that sounds like the last one? Are they stagnating? That's my idea of a fan. It would be hard ever to accuse the descendants of stagnating. They don't stay in one place long enough for that. The group has just left for its second 60-day national tour in the last six months. And once again, the band will sleep in the van for the duration. Just a minor inconvenience, according to Stevenson. There are ten people living in one room ten miles from here, he says. That's real poverty. We've got it easy. I'm real thankful that I'm allowed to play music and express myself and be free. We have a real simple existence. I don't want a bed. I haven't slept in a bed since I was 18. I don't want a house. I don't have any material goals. Kind of like punk rock monks. Yeah, well, you hear that a lot about this band is just real, real econo living, you know, during this era. Yeah, For sure. A while back, Ryan, our our pal, our podcast pal, Kale Sandvik, sent us a press kit for Livage, and it has some cool nugs in it, including a, an article that was from Rip Magazine, if you can believe it.
0: Was Rip? That was like the one that it was like it had posters in it that you like are yep. things
1: you would want to hang up on your wall, right? Yep, including there was
0: a, there was lots of hairspray in that magazine.
1: Oh, right? for sure there was. But there's also yeah. a piece here called "Growing Up," and it's written by Mike Gitter. Oh, no way. Yeah. It says, it's actually a big article, but I just pulled some pieces out of it. It kind of goes through their history and stuff. Following two full US Canada tours and the current lineup finally coming into its own, the Descendants released Enjoy, perhaps their best executed outing to date. With material ranging from the side-splittingly funny title cut, fluctuation punctuates the still night air, I queefed Enjoy to a beefed-up version of the Beach Boys' Wendy. I'm really happy with Enjoy, says Bill. It represents exactly what the Descendants are up to now and exactly how the members play. Doug and Ray have their own unique styles, and I think that really comes across, which is very true. Enjoy is a tour tour de force of band unity, from Stevenson's Ton of Bricks skin-pounding to Ray's soothing guitar style to Doug's urgent bass plucks to Aukerman's wide vocal range. The descendants are represented as four individuals, all giving 100% to their art. There's no dictatorship, reveals Bill, and that's really important to me. I've had bosses before, and I've been a boss before, and I don't think that's how God really intended the world to be. I think it should be more like the caveman, or I want to be a bear ideal. You have to treat other people with respect, and that's something that you absolutely have to have in a band. It took me a real long time to understand that. On a lot of my songs on the last record, I was real, really particular about the way a song should be played. And I honestly think that I alienated a lot of my friends in doing that. The band has definitely opened my eyes in that way. If you want to be able to free up other people, you have to set an example. And I see The Descendants as the sort of band that does just that. Hmm. I wonder if being in Black Flag kind of, you know, opened his mind? Well, I was going to say the opposite kind of um, put him in that very specific, you know, his words, you know, dictatorship type of oh, thing. Oh,
0: so he he was able to reflect on the way in which he was running his band after he was under the thumb of Gin yeah. for so long. Yeah, yeah. That, I think that that's legit. Probably gave him that perspective of like, that sucked so hard for me. Why yeah. would I do that to my other bandmates?
1: Yeah. Ryan, let's switch gears and go over to Brian Probart. Um, this is great timing. We're kind of coming into a new phase of SST. Like I was saying last week, you've got you know, three kind of phases of SST, really, in my mind anyways. You've kind of got the glory years with the albums that made the labels legend, you know, like Flag, Huskers, Pops, Minutemen, etc. You've got the total explosion of releases. That's kind mm-hmm. of the second phase. And then... Uh, you know, with a lot of the more avant-garde bands to a degree. Late 80s, uh, yeah. right? Yep. And now kind of this third phase, and, you know, I would call it the final phase. Uh, again, I want to be really clear, there's still some amazing stuff to come, so please stick with us. But this is kind of the, the third phase of the label, I would say, that we're just, just now getting into. So it's a, it's a good time to bring in Brian and kind of kick that off in a way.
0: Yeah, I agree. He gives us, you know, what was the haps at the time, for sure.
1: All right. Well, let's let's hear from Brian. All right. We're joined on the podcast today by Brian Probart. Brian, thanks for being on the show.
0: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: Okay. Let's go all the way back. Did you grow up in Torrance?
2: I was born in Torrance, but uh my family was living in Manhattan Beach. Uh so I live, you know, uh near the beach uh west of PCH in Manhattan beach till I was about seven. So I grew up at the beach and then we moved to uh Sierra Madre, which is in LA as well, but it's more of a, you know, small town mountain community next to Pasadena rather than at the beach. So I lived there until my first year of high school. Then we moved back to Torrance and I went to Torrance high and, and lived there for probably 10 years after that as well. Okay. Uh, so you know, mostly in the South Bay, but with a slight diversion.
1: Right. Uh, what year did you graduate high school? Uh, 1982. Graduated January uh, semester early. By that point, I guess hardcore's going full tilt. Is that were you into? What were you into musically at that point?
2: Uh, well, living in Sierra Madre, I was more into uh, uh, heavier classic rock before moving to Torrance, so, you know, Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, uh, you know, things that, I, you know, I, as a younger kid, I listened to Kiss, and then, like, a friend's older brother told me about Deep Purple and Judas Priest and Black Sabbath and these other bands I should be listening to. So yep. I was into all that, and then, uh, you know, Van Halen, when that first record came out, they they were from the, the area and so I was listening to them, the jukebox in the neighborhood, you know, running with the devil, play it over and over again. And yeah. and then uh, we moved to to Torrance and I went to Torrance High and, and got into people that were more into Devo and, you know, new wave stuff. And so it was like an exchange, you know, student kind of thing. My, my older brother went to Maricosa high school and, and he lived in Hermosa beach, you know, back in the, the 60s and 70s and you know when you could get an apartment for 70 bucks and live you know a half block from the pier you know near where all the sst stuff was happening back then but you know i I was in the middle of all that without really you know being aware of it right even in high school going to Torrance high you know chuck was flyer in the high school back then like you know, putting up black fly flyers around the high school, and I didn't really know what it was, but, you know, I would see those things.
1: Okay, so I guess, yeah. you know, before starting at SST, what were you doing kind of after high school and, and before starting at SST?
2: So I, I had a, a bunch of temp jobs, or, you know, I worked in aerospace, and got laid off several times, and when I was working at at Garrett Air Research, I worked with uh, Dave from St. Vitus, uh, being a metal guy when I saw St. Vitus play when they had their album release. And so I, I, you know, was early exposed to St. Vitus and got their first record at that show and T-shirt and, you know, so that was early on, 84, 85, when I was
1: still kind of a, you know, metal transitioning into the punk and hardcore. Right. What kind of business was that that you and Dave Chandler worked at? Uh,
2: Garrett Air Research was like a big military contractor that built, you know, like uh, uh, fighter jets and mm. the B-1 bomber and F-17, that kind of stuff. We we built parts for those those things. Ah, okay. And he he worked downstairs and would dip things in these chemicals like MEK tanks and, you know, like strip metal you know, stuff off the metal. And I was doing basic, you know, assembly of stuff.
1: Yeah. Tell me about seeing Vitus in those early, early days. Yeah, just,
2: just seeing that, you know, record release show, you know, and it was amazing. And, you know, and being a Black Sabbath fan, it was like, couldn't believe that there was something, you know, similar to that in in my day and age you know not from 10 years because i was you know i saw all the big metal bands and, you know the ozzy on his first first tour with you know uh motorhead opening you yeah, know yeah. their ace of spades tour that kind of stuff so you know going from that environment into the punk stuff you know at that time and and you know there's all the crossover stuff with dri and coc you know, I really knew those bands pretty well, you know, before they kinda of became metal and you know, like the D R I crossover record, probably the last one I really know about well, but you know, just I I didn't turn my you know, I turned my back on metal and just went into this alternative world and you know, didn't look back until much later.
1: Where was that Vita show?
2: That would've been I wanna say at the Roxy Theater in Hollywood. And Ron Coleman was handing out free T-shirts to the first whoever you know hundred people through the door, and you know, hmm. uh, and, and I had no uh, no other connection with SST at that point other than just
1: you know going to see a friend's band. Right. How did the SST get on your radar as far as like a job opportunity?
2: Well, you know, I. I I knew the music through skate videos, like Wheels of Steel, Streets of Fire, that kind of stuff, where, you know, like Nautis' part with fire hose and that kind of stuff, where you just watch it over and over again, you know that music, and so uh, at 25, after, you know, bouncing around from different jobs, I sat down and decided, like, what do I want to do, what am I into, and it's music, so. I opened the paper and found a job at the record store, which was like right by LAX. And they were going to open a store in Palos Verdes by San Pedro. So I got that job and, you know, I had the interview was like, like who named the members of the who or Led Zeppelin. It's like, I, you know, I've got that down pretty well. So I got the job and, and also Joey Burns, who went on to do Calexico and he was in nothing painted blue and, friends and Dean Martinez before that we both started there so we worked at a little shop in you know near San Pedro up on the hill in a little nicer neighborhood and uh, you know just a little mall store and so i hit up SST for some promo stuff like you know i you know get free posters and stuff like that and not long after that Chuck Dukowski called the store and got the owner and the owner was like yeah, you know, that's weird. Why did he call here? And I was like, I don't know that's weird, but then I you know called right back to sst when I got a chance and got an interview with Chuck and ended up working there and that was they were in Carson at the time, which was inland from from the South Bay, you know on the other side of the tracks over by the petroleum factories and you know the shipping corridor going you know from the long Beach port, so it's kind of Bad neighborhood, but you know, I'd ride my skateboard to the to the bus, and then you know, take the bus out there and and go to work and and sell records for SST and call up record stores all over the country and you know whatever was new. That was my job.
1: <laughs> so when Chuck phoned the store, he was specifically looking for you. You know, I he, he was
2: calling around local stores trying to get people to come in to interview uh-huh. and the only reason that we were on his radar is because I had contacted them for promo stuff. Right.
1: right. And
2: then Joey ended up following me there as well. So Joey Burns ended up being the receptionist at SSD hmm. uh,
1: before going on to his his big musical career. And it was just Chuck who conducted the interview?
2: Yeah. You know, when I first
1: uh, showed
2: up, it was uh, Ron Coleman, I think I talked to and then, yeah, I interviewed
1: with, with Chuck. Okay. What was that interview like? Probably asked you if you uh, knew the members of Led Zeppelin or something.
2: <laughs> <laughs> a very very similar interview. No, I, I don't remember being any qualifications other than just kind of a, a vibe check, you know, like mm-hmm. if, if
1: I was going to work out or not. What were your day-to-day uh, duties at SST? Uh, it would be uh, calling up record stores,
2: and we had the country split down the middle. So I had the northern half, and Gary Hustwith in the beginning had the lower half. And so we would call up the existing store network, you know, the people that were already buying from SSB, but also we would get all the promo mags from around the country, like the Rocket, or you know, different different local papers and things, where. Uh, stores would advertise, or they'd do co-op ads with a, a label it would list like local stores at the bottom. So we'd call those stores up and say, "Hey, this is this is Brian from SST. Is wondering if you're interested in buying direct from us, and can I sell, send you a catalog?" And so then kind of get that going. And, and you know, sometimes I have to call back six, seven times to get through to the right person. But
1: right. you know, just uh, building up that network. Uh, And what was Chuck's kind of status at SST during this time? Uh, Chuck
2: was the sales manager. So we were in a, this was like, I'd liken it to like a dentist office kind of building, you know, and we were in a bedroom kind of sized room and like four of us working in there and and Chuck would deal with the, uh, the major distribution, like, shipping overseas, shipping, you know, the orders to our distributors, like Interscope or, you know, whoever was at the time, you know, carrying their stuff. He, he did the big
1: orders. Okay. And what about Greg day to day? Like, was he around? Did you see him a lot? I would, I would see him
2: in passing and he had his
1: office in the
2: building. So if he wasn't there, he was probably in Long Beach later you know doing his recording or he had a radio show but uh when by the time i was working at sst they had gotten to more of a division of labor and not hanging out and just partying and so you come in and you you clock in on the time clock and you have your coffee ready and you get to work and it's not about you know wandering around to the different departments and saying hi to everybody and you know all that stuff so yeah, we didn't hang out with Greg though. You know, at like break time, go out front and shoot some hoops, you know, play horse or whatever. So right. he was around.
1: Yep. How focused was he on like Cruise and, and New Alliance at that time? Do you think he was? It seems like you know th- both those labels were really starting to to get going at that time.
2: Yeah, and you know the way they explained it to me was that when you're when you're promoting, you know, say six records at a time. And they're all coming from SST. It's hard to get the attention on everything. So, like buyers would be like, "Oh, well, what are the top one or two of these ones that I should actually buy?" And I'm going to ignore the other ones. So by splitting it up onto different labels, they kind of hope to get more attention to every release, mm-hmm. and not have it you know just fall in, in the cracks. So, okay, they were trying to you know se- spread it out you know into different things.
1: Okay, you mentioned the time clock. How did that? jive with like the infamous SST work ethic.
2: (laughs) Oh God. Well, you know, the, the SST work of of Greg where he's just going night and day, you know, that was one thing, but I I think it came about more of, you know, people that were taking advantage of it, not contributing probably. So it was funny to play, you know, clocked in at work and, you know, saying rip that fucker off the wall but you know we would still <laughs> clock it and it wasn't like a a big deal we just we'd do it to like make fun of, of chuck and you know like in good natured fun <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah I, you sent me a number of amazing photos and in one of them you know if, if it weren't for the all the band promo material on the walls it would look like a regular office cubicles and everything Mm-hmm. yeah
2: yeah the that was uh, the Los Alamitos office that we moved to, and yeah, it was, it's a bigger space. And and what you see in there was the sales and promo was behind that, and like Robert Vodica with New Alliance, he had he was back in the corner. And the part you couldn't see would be like the accounting office and the art department and Greg's office back in the corner, so mm-hmm. uh, a, a lot bigger place
1: most people kept office hours even by that point?
2: Yeah. Yeah, we it was uh, regular office hours and then, you know, there was always a show at, at night or whatever that we you know, congregate to, so. Right. Socially, but
1: what about tunes in the office? Was there like a central system playing music throughout the whole office?
2: No, like in the sales office, uh we just had a, a little uh boom box that uh you know initially, I think it was maybe just a tape deck. I remember listening to like the first Nirvana record. We listened to that every day and and jawbreaker on fun every day, like Chuck must know those songs inside and out from hearing them every day but yeah you know, yeah we we would li- we would take turns, you know who plays the next record, so it was it was pretty democratic and yeah, yeah, you know, mix it up and.
1: It wasn't just SST stuff?
2: No, not at all. But we definitely would play that stuff too. We, we'd play Black Flag to check. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> what about like um,
2: demos? Demos we weren't exposed to there. You know, that would have been going probably directly to Greg, if if anything. Yeah, there was, we, we didn't have anything
1: to do with it. What about like the culture around the office at that time and, and morale?
2: You know, it, it felt like a family and I would credit SST to kind of opening up my world to to the music business and, and as a family and, and, you know, actually being inside the, the music community rather than just being a fan on the
1: outside and kind of like not really being a part of it. I would say it started there. How many people would have been working there in 89, for example, when you started? give or take?
2: Uh, Yeah, there's probably a dozen would be my guess. It's hard to say because there was people working in the warehouse, which was kind of socially separate from us as well. And, you know, there's a lot of people that, you know, there's probably like five or six people working in the warehouse that I didn't even know. So it's hard to put a number on exactly how many people were there.
1: Yeah. So in the roughly five years you were there, I believe, like how many times did you move, move offices?
2: Uh, only we only moved once. Um, they were in Carson when I started there, so they'd already basically been run out of the South Bay, <laughs> yeah. and uh, but you know this was you know just probably maybe a mile south of Compton and a mile north of Long Beach, kind of in a nether world there. And then we moved even farther east to Los Alamitos, which is where a racetrack is, uh, like a horse racetrack. And this was just like, you know, an industrial building, tilt-up concrete thing that was new. And I remember going to the bar by the racetrack at Los Alamitos with people, and it was some, you know, old, like connected gangster guy with a Cadillac out front and, you know, red velvet booths. And, you know, that was the old neighborhood, but we were in, in a new, you know, building there. And and then Greg also started, you know, his Long Beach cruise thing before that. And, and he just ended up moving it all down to Long Beach at some point. Mm. Uh, when I was working at Revelation later, that Greg was in Long Beach then and we would distribute SST stuff from him.
1: So the pictures that you sent have some of those photos of the infamous hangout places, you know, near SST. Tell me about some of those, like where you mm-hmm. would go for drinks after work or whatever.
2: Well, we had our we would have a field trip to Alfredo's, not the the one in Lamita, which I had gone to many times as well. But this was one in Carson, and I think they had three of them at the time. So. You know, let's go to Alfredo's for lunch, and yeah, so we all packed up and went to Alfredo's. So that that would be a, a local spot for us. But yeah, yeah, we were definitely by the time we moved to Los Alamitos, we were kind of culturally, you know, somewhere else. We weren't in the South Bay anymore.
1: Were you around when the SST Superstore started, or was that a bit later?
2: Um, no, I was there when it started. I actually filled in a couple times, uh, like. Uh, Falling James from the Leaving Trains was working there. Uh, Pat Smear was working there. I'd go up there and like Pat would have a show. You know, he'd have to go to. He had something else, so I'd fill in for him. And that was right before he got the call from Nirvana and, and all that. But definitely
1: worked there a few days. Not not very much. So we're talking about Alfredo's, so let's talk about the Descendants a little bit. I'm assuming when you went to the other Alfredo's, it was with some of them.
2: Uh, no, actually, I would go there as a fan. Uh, my, I would say probably around 87, 88, uh, my friend from high school, Chip, yeah, all the descendants tapes, and we would cruise around in his truck and listen to descendants and you know enjoy. and they all, you know, and the first all record when it came out was around that time. Right. And so, yeah, Alfredo's, we would definitely go down to alfredo's and and eat there a lot. Uh, in early eighty eight, I was uh, I went back to college uh, for a semester during the day and I was working at, uh, AMSC theater in Lamita at night. And some guy in a group came up with, uh, uh, all that red all the t-shirt. And I complimented. Him. I was like, Oh, I love all. And he's like, Oh yeah, it's my band. And it's like, Oh, and I realized it was all. And, was, you know, <laughs> this was Dave and, you know, Bill, you know, I'm, I do not know if Bill appreciated that it was, it was Dave's band, but, right. uh, you know, Bill came in and ordered, you know, four hot dogs and four Cokes, and they went and watched the movie, but it's like, ah, that, so, I, yeah, I wasn't hanging out with them, but I, I definitely met them, yeah. uh, was where I, I did, uh, order a lot of stuff, mail order from them, I, you know, this is the only band that I, I was a fanboy of, that I would write a letter to, and right. their, uh, their merch girl, Serena, who was Shreen, I guess, but, uh, Serena would answer my letters and, and fill my orders. And, you know, I'd ordered you know, like four bonus cups and all the T-shirts and stickers and everything. So, <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay. Well, you specifically suggested, you know, this Descendants Enjoy record. Why? Was it one of the first things you worked on when you when you started at SST, the reissue?
2: It, it was something that I remember being there for. And, that uh, you know, I was very excited about it coming out on CD because I was, you know, I've you know, I felt like that was a superior format in nineteen eighty you know, late eighties or whatever. Yeah. And uh when it was on Enigma it didn't come out on C D. So this would be the first time on C D and uh, you know, maybe the other people at SST weren't as, you know, hyped up about it, but you know, I, I was I was. So I made a, a one sheet promo page to tout it to the stores that I would fax out, you know, you know, first time on C D and uh, that's why I, I, I wanted to be on this episode and yeah. you know it was a descendants that really pulled me into that whole whole environment anyways and you know before working there i i was you know i was a fan of sonic youth and husker du and you know me puppets minute man a, a lot of those bands kind of you know a little bit but not you know they weren't my favorite band
1: right so you know we hear a lot about when you're looking at the whole picture of sst that the era that we're just starting to get into now this 89 to whenever mid nineties, basically the, the area you worked there, that's like the low point of the label. What do you, what do you say to that? Um, musically, it, I mean, I,
2: I feel like looking at it as just the SST releases, maybe, uh, it was more like uh, family bands that were still, still performing like, you know, Ah, uh, leaving trains, or Jack Brewer band, or you know, they were on New Alliance. But uh, you know, bands like that, that were still in the in the orbit, but not the the big bands that's gone on the major labels. So it was kind of a weird time of being, you know, that still SSP, but still doing those bands. But I feel like the the newer stuff is being put on the crews, you know, with uh, all big drill car chemical people, skin yard maybe a little more artier stuff was going on to new Alliance and SSP was kind of more with, you know, bands that had been around already. So it wasn't as new forward looking. And, and, you know, when I first started there, I I said, Oh, you know, I think we should sign Nirvana. They're great, and they're like, yeah, we know about them, and yeah. <laughs> and then the other band was Jawbreaker. I was like, oh, these, you know, I think Jawbreaker great. They don't, they don't even have a CD for their first record, you know. I felt like they were right for you know being signed and everything. And they're like, yeah, they, they kind of sound like Squirrel Bait, and <laughs> so that didn't happen either. But mm. so that that was the end of my A and R career there. <laughs>
1: yeah. Any standout records in your mind from that we're going to be getting? getting into on our show in the next couple of years? Like what were the bigger records that you um, would have been working on?
2: Honestly, there was uh there was stuff on all three labels and it was a mix all the time. So, you know, as far as like new bands that I thought were really going to take off, I was, I thought all should be like a, a stadium band. Like they should be playing bigger places. Everybody should know all and, yep. and big drill car. And, you know, it's like, those are the the bands that were going out on tour and really working. And, and there was, you know, there's other releases like Negative Land U2 that were, you know, like a big deal that we had to deal with. There was uh, Jack Brewer, there was Overpass record, you know, but a lot of the stuff was on new Alliance or Cruise and it was just kind of blurred together. So just to look at the number, you know, SST catalog, it's hard to, they you know pick out and also the 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 time like the numbers are aren't necessary you know chronological so you know a number might be assigned and then it doesn't happen and it gets something else assigned to it so yeah like like yeah. this record came out in early 90 but then it's 89 or whatever yeah.
1: right right do you have any insight into like the all the blank catalog numbers that we're going to start seeing? Was it just a matter of it's assigned to, you know, some band that, that we're going to put out and then it, it falls through?
2: I I would think so. Yeah. That the it just never, like, they didn't get assigned and, you know, printed on a catalog and sent out and then they didn't happen type of thing. I think it's just like, uh, it's hard. Like that was a whole other
1: part of the business that I wasn't exposed to. So. All right. There's nothing you can think of that that you're aware of that, you know, was... Oh, a, that
2: should have happened, that didn't? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. No, yeah not at all. Yeah, there's usually like, uh, you know, three or four releases coming out in the next, you know, month or week or whatever. And there's always plenty of things, you know, t- so it's kind of hard to look at what wasn't happening right. know, or the the gaps or whatever <laughs> and the numbers would would they wouldn't be like you know 374 375 they wouldn't come out like one after the other sometimes like the cruise records those came out you know and those low numbers and their sequence all right not missing anything but but yeah by the
1: 200 something of SST i say. as far as you understood it cruise was kind of Greg's baby solely yeah Yeah. And I think that
2: happened around the time that that Chuck was being bought out from SST and and Greg, you know, I I don't know if it was for Greg to have his own baby or spread it out or whatever, but yeah, that that was primarily uh, Greg.
1: Yeah. So tell me about some of the other names and what they would have been doing during your time at SST. So the,
2: the people that I could think of that were there when I started would be the, the art department of Patrick Manning or, V-neck as he was known. And then the artists, uh, Craig Ibarra and Victor Gastium, And they were both there when I started. And when I left, uh, great artists and you know, they're, they're still friends. Uh, also Robert Bodica, he was in charge of new Alliance. The label at the time and until he moved to Japan at some point. So we had a, a mock up of, of uh, Vodka Goes to Japan like Milo Goes to College. <laughs> uh, Rich Ford, Richie was production guy and, and he had his own little office near us. And, you know, he'd just be locked in there all day and we'd see him at the end of the day or at lunch or whatever. The, the accounting department was kind of anonymous to us. Uh, There was Greg and his assistant, Sydney, who hasn't really come up, I don't think. But but Sydney, she was always, you know, uh, working on behalf of Greg or or like his, you know, spokesperson in in the company. If you needed to talk to Greg, Sydney was the person. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Chuck was the the sales manager. And, you know, so he'd be in in meetings with with Greg or whatever. But, you know, he was primarily in our our office with us. Pete Bussey was his assistant. And Pete took care of processing the, the big orders and all of our little store orders, and putting them in the computer, getting them out to the warehouse, dealing with those people. There was, uh, you know, mail order people. Uh, Dan Correa did mail orders, so he opened the envelopes and you know sent out the stuff to people that they were ordering from the catalog. Uh, other salespeople would be uh, when I started there, Gary Hustwit who went on to do documentary films. You know, he did one about uh, Dieter Rams recently. Then the next salesperson would be uh, Laura Ludwig, who, being a she was a big Ween fan, and she ended up uh, dating Chuck for a while, and, and they had a kid together, Isaac Hayes Dukowski. That was L.L., Laura Ludwig, and she had a song on the United Gang Members record that Chuck put out, uh, L.L. It was about her. And, and then Jessica Estrada, uh, she replaced Laurel and she had Isaac. And uh, Jessica went on, she was from Tower Records. She, she did sales at Tower and then she came to work at SST and went on to work at Coachella. So she, she runs that stuff for, forever. In promo, there was uh, Ron Coleman, who I mentioned. And uh, Greg Jacobs, or Jake as we knew him, he's also Patreon Cars manager, uh, uh, Rocket from the Crip, and Drive Like Jay, who's manager. So I think with that kind of stuff, he ended up leaving and doing his own thing. And him and, and Gary Huswith had an office together and were doing their own, own things after SSD. And that's pretty much the people that I was working with there.
1: Okay. What about Global? Uh,
2: global. Forget who was who was doing booking at the time. It wasn't Chuck anymore.
1: But they still had the the in house booking. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part. Would bands come in to the office?
2: Occasionally, uh, and again, we're in our own offices. So, like, you know, if I were to go walk outside to the Roach Coach or whatever, I might see you know HR or Earl hanging out or whatever. But uh, for the most part you know, I wouldn't really see bands out where I might you know, meet them at shows and stuff. If you walked outside to the what? <laughs> oh, uh, like at, at break, we would have a, a truck, you know, they call it the roach coach, uh, you know, a uh, truck show up for, for food, you know, and you can go out and get burgers or oh. you know, burritos or that kind of stuff. And so i I can remember at one point, you know, going out and finding a bag of weed out front and then seeing HR out at the truck and like, Hey, I think this is yours. <laughs> and giving it to like, Oh, thanks.
1: <laughs> Tell me about this commercial that ended up on MTV. This, <laughs> the corporate rock sucks commercial.
2: Okay. So yeah, that was with, uh, Gary Hustwith. Um, uh, and we, we had a little script, you know, and we went to this little studio and kind of a, whole day thing of filming the egg frying in the pan and then you know waiting around for all this production stuff and and i remember greg rolling up a joint on the mixing console and we went out and smoked a joint and so you know when it's time for my scene i was pretty high <laughs> and we uh we we do that split second scene of this is your brain this is your brain on corporate rock and yeah, that that aired on 120 minutes and on Headbanger's Ball and yeah. Yeah.
1: So, and it's fun. up on up on YouTube now. Yeah, there's there's a clip of it on YouTube.
2: I've I've got a VHS of it somewhere, probably a better copy I, I should upload sometime.
1: Okay, well you mentioned weed, so I have to ask. Like obviously the the SST folklore has it that you know, there was a lot of pot getting smoked. Was that like a daily thing at the office? Yeah.
2: Uh it wasn't at work and again that that was I feel like I, I missed probably a time of a lot of weed smoking. I'm sure that, you know, Greg was smoking in his office, but we weren't at you know, in the sales office. Uh it'd be more of like a after work out of the parking lot thing. But definitely before every show,
1: uh, I would have been high and, you know, if I don't remember people, that's probably why. Yeah. <laughs> Did you leave SST to go work at Revelation, or how did that work?
2: No, I I got laid off, and I'm not really sure why, but you know it, it was probably just a time, and you know it was replaced with a couple people, and uh, so then it was you know having to figure out where I was going to go, and you know I didn't want to leave SST, I, I loved it, so uh, it was kind of a shock, but also it was probably a good time to move on, and so I got a job. Uh, working at Final Solution, which is a, a punk rock record store in Huntington Beach. Yeah. And I was doing that, I don't know, maybe a couple of days a week. And then I was working with um, Greg and Gary, the guys that worked at SSP. Uh, they had an independent music seminar in San Diego, the IMS 94 and 95. And so I would go down there and, and sleep in my camper overnight and Going in and help them get ready for this seminar thing, which was basically getting people to uh, come and, and, you know, try to get, you know, get signed or whatever, you know, trying to be indie bands. How do you, how do you be a successful indie band? They were trying to make a a business out of that. So doing that. And then I was also working at the Irvine airport for Hertz, driving, parking cars one or two days a week. So like kind of, scraping together some and then uh i was working at at vinyl solution and a guy jello was working at at revelation it's like hey maybe you should work at, at at revelation you know they need some sales help so that's how i got pulled into that and you know i started there and I was initially just given a, a telephone on the corner of the the artist's desk you know to call call a few stores and make some sales and you know, eventually I got my own desk and you know started taking over the place. But mm-hmm. that, that's how I transitioned.
1: Post Revelation, did you leave the industry after that?
2: Yeah, I uh, got a job at a uh, motorcycle video company. We we produced uh, stunt bike videos for road bikes, and we were uh, distributing like motocross and supercross
1: and uh, BMX videos, that kind of stuff. Tell me a bit about trick bag. What's trick bag all about? Uh,
2: that is something that was started by uh, Lily, my girlfriend. She's uh, from Boston for many years in the music industry there and uh, when she moved out here, she'd uh, take a little bag of records out and dj with with a couple friends and we've been doing that. You know, for probably over 10 years, where we just uh, DJ around town and different bars and clubs and things.
1: Yeah. Lily has a pretty deep history in the scene as well. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely on the East Coast. She knows a lot of people. Yeah. Tell me a bit about her history. Uh,
2: Well, she moved out to Boston in, I want to say, 79, uh, started working at the RAT. So she was a punk rock waitress there and worked for the Middle East, and she uh, managed bands like the Del Fuegos, and she, you know, worked uh, basically worked for Slash. It's an East Coast person, and uh, knew a lot of people through that connection, and, and other bands she managed like uh, Scruffy the Cat, and she had her own club there, Lilies. She's pretty well known in the Boston music scene.
1: You're st- are you still going out to see bands and and still active in the scene?
2: Um, yeah, we still DJ just about once a week at the screwdriver bar down downtown Seattle and doing happy hour. We don't necessarily DJ till three in the morning like we used to. But yeah, I still like to get out and 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 see friends and meet people and stuff like that be social. Just kind of like your podcast do
1: it you know on a regular basis right <laughs> right on. Brian, thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's great being on. Yeah. So Brant, can you imagine working at SST in a cubicle and cranking black flag when <laughs> Chuck, when Chuck Dukowski's like, you know, just down the hall yeah, from you? Yeah,
1: know. I know. Um, yeah, it would, it would have been wild. Um, some of the things that I that I pulled out from the interview, uh, he mentions working with Dave Chandler and and going to the Vitus album release show. He actually sent me a photo uh, by Naomi Peterson um, of Saint Vitus Live that was ended up being used for the back cover of The Walking Dead 12 inch and you can see him in the front in front of the stage wearing his battle vest, his metal battle vest with all the patches on it, which it he st- yeah. Oh, no way. Yeah, and he still has it too. He, he sent me a, a recent picture of him wearing his battle vest, so we'll post all of that. Um, Joey Burns of Calexico worked as a receptionist at SST. That's interesting. I don't know if we knew that. Yeah, I uh, don't think so. I know Victor, who worked in the the SST art department, um, he went on to do some pretty famous cover art for Calexico, so there's just more cool SST connections. I wonder if they maybe met at SST or... Probably knew each other pre-SST, but love the story of his pre-SST career, just cruising around with his friends and, and listening to Descendants and like going to eat at Alfredo's, hoping to bump into the bands, yeah. into the band. I feel like I that's what, you know, you and I probably would have done that too.
0: For sure. <laughs> oh yeah.
1: Do you remember the Alfredo's restaurant that was here? I, I imagine it was like that Alfredo's, like cheap and huge portions.
0: Like in our... Like in the city that you and I used to live in? Was there an Alfredo's? There was, yeah. Oh, I don't remember that.
1: Yeah, you would get, like, you would order a pizza sub, and it would be like two foot long subs from Subway, and you would eat one and take the other one with you. Oh, I don't remember that. (laughs) Just dirt cheap, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, That Corporate Rock Sucks commercial. You can find it on YouTube. It's pretty amazing. He also sent me the script that they used for the commercial. Um, And just like an amazing peek into SST day to day during, during this era, you can almost picture it. uh, And to a degree, you're not going to have to, he sent me some phenomenal photos. So watch our Instagram this week. You'll, you'll see pictures of a lot of the people that he mentioned. I was definitely jotting down names of the, the SST staff, a few of whom I have, you know, that we've been in touch with previously about future episodes, but many names that are new to me. Um, Brian's the dude with the red black flag shirt, by the way, in the, and the long hair in the commercial if you if you're watching it. Ryan, let's talk about this reissue. History lesson part 2.
0: All right, right off the hop in this episode, I couldn't I couldn't contain myself about how it's a like a divisive record for me. So, let me hit you with some spiels to kind of set the stage for how people viewed this record and this is part of what resonates with me. Anyways, as much as I love this record, So here's Ira Robbins from the Trouser Press Record Guide talking about Enjoy. Enjoy features a new bassist and proves that even talented young bands with positive attitudes are not immune to gratuitous vulgarity and bass stupidity. Ouch. Uh, The title song is a childish paean to farting, complete with audio verite effects. Two others reveal a deeply juvenile attitude towards women. On the other hand, a peppy version of Brian Wilson's Wendy is spectacular. Most of the originals, including the satirical and Crew, the Anglo-poppin' Get the Time, and the surly noise of the seven minutes plus Days Are Blood are at least near excellent, reflecting the band's loping musical strides. Curious art note, the titles listed on the back cover have virtually nothing in common with the record's contents. So some of that juvenile content is kind of the, the part that when I was younger, I was like, I was all over it. But now I just kind of, I kind of fast forward past it, mm. right? Now, but speaking in terms of like the actual lyrical content, there's actually in this same book, Triple X fanzine that compiles Mike Gitter's zine. To accompany all of the old articles, there are new interviews. And again, this book came out in 2017. And here's uh, what Milo says about some of the lyrical content, generally, um, not specifically with this one, but it kind of gets at you know where his where his and the band's head was at when writing some of these lyrics. Here's Mike Gitter speaking of women the descendants have been accused of being everything from hopeless romantics to outright misogynists for songs like clean sheets those sheets are dirty and so are you ouch is a pretty vicious line do you agree and here's milo when we started writing songs we were 16 or 17 we were completely hopeless with girls we just couldn't figure them out i'd say we've gotten better about it but at the time when you're that hopeless with girls There's a certain amount of bitterness that enters into your perspective on your whole boy-girl dynamic. That comes out in that song along with other songs from that period like Hope. If there's a certain amount of bile in our viewpoint about a girl, we'll just say it. It's gotten us in trouble though. In some cases, it can be viewed as sexist or misogynistic. If you teeter on that line like any comedian or artist... If you try to be truthful and the truth is portrayed as misogynistic, which is more important, to be politically correct or truthful? Clean Sheets is a song that points the finger at someone. I'm not sure it's being misogynistic. It's more pointing your finger at someone who's being unfaithful, which happens all the time. So I thought those quotes were kind of good to set the stage on some of the content we're going to get to in this record. Because again, like, I do kind of groan at some of this content, but, but some of this content, if I think back to what I was like as a, you know, a teenager, early twenties, I can also totally relate to the bile as my, as Milo put it, I can relate to the bile.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's fair to, they were very young when they did this and it's of its time. You know what I mean? Like I yeah. can, you know, I can only imagine if, if, I, I was able to release stuff my bands were doing. It was probably worse than this, you know?
0: Yeah, I find this record is both adolescent and amazing. That's kind of how I put it. It's both.
1: Yeah, well, the I, I love the, the adolescent stuff. I mean, I've talked about this before. My go-to Descendants stuff was Summary, Liveage, and this album. That's mm-hmm. what I had. So this is still, to this day, my favorite Descendants record.
0: All right, well, let's do it.
1: Alright, Ryan, so as we mish- mentioned, this isn't actually a reissue. It came out in 1990 on LP, CD, and cassette. Actually, the CD came out a little bit later. Um, I'll talk about that a little bit when we go through the artwork. Um, two bonus tracks that aren't on the new Alliance release. No info on whether anything was done to this sonically, but I suspect not. I, I haven't heard the new Alliance version, but I'm, I'm guessing it's the same. Yeah,
0: neither have I. I've got it on CD and a, I think a relatively early version of it on SST, and they they sound pretty much the same. Have not compared it with the New Alliance version.
1: Yeah. Okay, so the first song is "Enjoy," credited to the whole band. Here's Milo. It was a Dougie bass riff, but obviously Ray and Bill had major parts to add to it. When I first heard it, it was pretty complete as a piece of music, so I just added the words. I remember thinking, what a cool jazzy song, then proceeded to fuck it up with lyrics about farting. Sorry, Doug. (laughs) I actually, you and I were talking about bootlegs a little bit earlier. I have a boot from August of 85 at a place called The Fool Fool Killer in Kansas City where they play an instrumental version of this, and it sounds like something, you know, Gone would have done you know, or something mm. like that. Milo calls it in like, you know, after the song, he goes, that's our, that's our new artsy fartsy song.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's one of the few songs that are named the same on the inside and the outside too, in terms of the track list.
1: Yeah. I love the song. I always have that bass riff, Bill's drumming, Ray's harmonics on the main riff are just awesome. Uh, those perfectly timed farts. And of course the lyrics with all of the, the inside jokes and the descendant slang were like, uh, why don't you take a whiff of my sniff and jiff, whatever that means. And, and let's go. Oh,
0: to- oh, you don't know what that means?
1: No. What does sniff and jiff mean?
0: Oh, I'm not going to say anything. <laughs>
1: uh, let's go to Gucci's and get some apricots, <laughs> whatever that means. Um, yeah, it's, I don't know, like I don't really consider the, the farting and stuff when I hear this. I just hear an awesome song. The second track is Wendy. This is, I, I'm i using air quotes when I say written by Brian Wilson and Mike Love. I doubt Mike Love had much to do with it. Originally credited to Brian alone, but Love's name got added after he sued Brian in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Mike Love was apparently eventually awarded co-writing credits on 35 songs after this lawsuit and $13 million. Uh, Brian Wilson has said it was written as an attempt to flatter the group The Four Seasons by imitating them. It was released as a B-side to the Good Vibration single as well as on an EP called Four by the Beach Boys and then again on their 1964 album All Summer Long. Here's Milo. Bill wanted to do a cover song for the record because we'd never recorded a cover before. And then he says more recently we have covered "Glad All Over on Ninth and Walnut. I wanted to do It Won't Be Long and Bill wanted Wendy, which I was also happy to do, although my favorite Beach Boy song is Don't Worry Baby.
0: Yeah, I love this track. I mean it's it's one of those covers where it's almost like, you know, the Descendants it's a descendant song, almost after all these years of listening to it. It's a great one. Weird, though, to put a cover on as track two. It's always weird for a cover to be early on in an album for me. They always seem like they should be on side two. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I don't know. It's probably just the nostalgia factor for me and just knowing what song's coming next as I listen to this album. Uh, but I, I just I've always loved the sequencing of this record, and we'll get to that in a little bit when we get to side two. Um, the track he mentions it it won't be long as an early Beatles song and, and either that or Don't Worry Baby by the Beach Boys would have been cool covers for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely, you can tell the Beach Boys were a influence on the Descendants. You know, for sure, it's such a great cover. Those classic Bill Stevenson snare rolls, Milo's vocal, the way they, they mix the backing vocals. Uh, it just gives me the feels every time and, and like so much of this stuff, it just takes me back. I've heard this album a thousand times or more and and one thing I never really noticed or I guess probably dissected before is is the bass playing. In that podcast interview um, that I mentioned earlier with, with Doug, he talks about how he comes more from the D.D. Ramone school of bass players, very different from Tony and Carl. And I never really picked up on that nuance until I, I really started to listen for it, but it's very true. Mm-hmm. The next one is Kids on Coffee, credited to Bill. And this is all on third-party websites, right? By the way, the the song credits. I don't think it's on the, on the record anywhere.
0: No, it just says all songs by The Descendants, except Wendy, written by Brian Wilson.
1: Yeah. Well, anyways, this song is Kids is generally credited to Bill. It's 44 seconds. This is the song that made me and my friends into just savage coffee drinkers when we were like 15 years old. And just the whole vibe of the song, with the you know the bonus, 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 bonus part, just exudes that hopped up on coffee vibe. I think this is the first mention of the Bassmaster General with Bill's warning at the beginning of the song. Yeah, and now thanks to our interview with Milo a while back, I know what crappers are. They're they're like th- things like soup crackers and and shit like that that you eat with when you're drinking your coffee on in the van. And it, of course, it has, you know, the famous line about driving down to San Diego and passing up the nuclear tits, which you can see for a brief second in the video they shot for this, all of which I asked Milo about. So he goes, the video was filmed by a UCSD film student. I can't remember his name. The nuclear tits are part of a nuclear power plant located in San Onofre, a town in between L.A. and San Diego. Anyone who drove that stretch between LA and San Diego probably called them that. How could you not, based on their appearance? Yeah,
0: I think they also feature prominently in the second Naked Gun movie, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe even <laughs> maybe even in the first one, with with uh, with similar intent.
1: Okay. So Bill and I were both aware of them, but he actually put them in the song when we needed a final verse. He wrote the line, Go away off my earth. I remember him saying something like, let's throw a little political commentary into our coffee song. When we were filming the video, the idea came up to act out our aversion to the nuclear plant by filming somebody throwing a rock at it from a safe distance, of course. The next song is "Hurt and Crew, uh, more or less written by the whole band. I believe this was a Milo song. Uh, the lyrics and music, and then the band helped finish the music. I read somewhere that people thought, uh, because of the... Um, lots that this was a jab at Hoosker Du, but those are clearly Motley Crue dots. It's,
0: those are Motley Crue dots, for sure,
1: man. Uh, it's yeah. even spelled crew, Crue, C-R-U-E. So. Yeah. Here's Milo. First verse was written about a show we did in Lincoln, Nebraska, where literally no one showed up. That's why it's referred to as a solo run in the song. The opening band that night was a hippie hard rock cover band and because there was no one in the club, we felt obliged to be their audience. The hippies returned the favor when we played, so there was at least someone in the audience. Then our newfound hippie audience yelled out for "Free Bird" during our set, which you can, which is referenced in the lyrics. And it became clear this was another hurt and crew moment for the Descendants. <laughs> I'm aware it says 15 hippies in the song. So yeah, it was more than just the band. Their friends and family were there too. Big time audience, he goes. The last verse just documents my self-perceived academic failures. I think Bug wrote the the last lines, Bug being Daniel Snow, their longtime friend and roadie who passed away last June. And the lyric he's talking about is, Told myself too many lies, my mind's unfolding before my eyes. The chorus is a bunch of disparaging things we would tell each other in my friend group as we all embarked on our adult strivings for success. After high school, we were always cutting each other down, saying how so-and-so will never make it big or is a loser. Get a life, good future dude, etc. Like we mentioned earlier, Ryan, a lot of the reviews of the band call them like a thrash band and stuff like that, which is obviously, obviously that's ridiculous. But they did occasionally have metal influences, especially on this album and and some on the next one as well. On all, yeah. Yeah. They could obviously play really fast when they wanted to. Um, this song also has the famous 1420, I Am Better Than You line, which has been covered on other episodes and is, it's pretty well known where that came from. And the liners on the New Alliance version actually say, special thanks to Roger, and then in brackets, 1420. So Roger... Is, was Milo's high school friend who scored 1420 on his SATs and then walked around school gloating, singing 1420, 1420. I'm better than you, you are a piece of poo. <laughs> <laughs> the next song is Sour Grapes, written by Milo and Doug. I've made it well known, uh, I think, on the Liveage episode that this is my favorite descendant song of all time. Uh, we picked it for the ballot result uh, for Liveage.
0: Yeah, it's a classic, all about unrequited love and resenting the girl who is
1: too cool for you. Yeah. In that podcast, Doug talks about writing the music for this song, um, and he wrote it on his front porch in Hermosa Beach while looking out at at some waves on a very specific type of guitar. Do you know what type of guitar?
0: I don't, but Hey You
1: New Wave. Yeah, he wrote it on a Spanish guitar.
0: A Spanish guitar?
1: Yeah. Nice. Nice. Here's Milo. When it was first written, it went straight into into that first verse, the Hey You New Wave thing. I can remember some shows where I just counted off one, two, three, four, and we would launch into it. Not ideal. I started singing gibberish like Ting a Ling Ling Chow Cha Chow Chow <laughs> as a count off, just being silly with it. At some point, we realized there needed to be a slow build-up to the first verse, which the band implemented, and then there was a need for some rap over it. The rap is not based on any real experience, because I would never have the balls to chat up some random girl at a bar. But that was the scene I was trying to convey, a total loser nerd like me trying to pick up on a hot new wave girl at a bar.
0: Yeah, and some of the boots from this era... Like from the studio recordings, you can hear them kind of working out that intro section, and they, and you know, the one that they landed for the album is different than some
1: of the earlier ones. Like the the harmonics and stuff that Ray
0: is is doing is a bit different.
1: Yeah, yeah. I have a bootleg from uh, September '85 in Berkeley where they play this, and it's much different. Still totally woodshedding it for sure. Um, And they also play Green and Wendy at that show, and. There's, of course, the enjoy demos, which sometimes get called Still Hungry or Milo Gets Bootlegged or Bonus Cups. Um, I asked Milo about that and he confirmed what I kind of already always suspected, which those aren't actually demos. They're just rough mixes of the album.
0: Yeah, some of them are rough mixes of the album and maybe um, some like different tracks that were then were actually used. Yeah. There are, though, like on on the still hungry and other ones there are tracks on here that didn't make their way onto the album they're like legit studio versions um
1: like shattered milo
0: yeah well shattered milo did make it onto this single eventually yeah the uh the i'm the one single but there are other tracks on there and i don't even know if it's like the real names You know, like uh, Doug rides a skateboard or Vinny, like those didn't make it onto an album ever.
1: You can only get them on these boots and their studio versions. Yeah, this song highlights for me what I've always loved about Ray's guitar playing, like the way he lets the bass play the melody and just kind of those punctuating chords that he does. It's kind of a Ray Cooper signature sound. And I, I, I wonder if it was influenced by any guitarist in particular. I'd love to have Ray on the show sometime. Mm-hmm. In uh, in this press kit, there's a piece from the Bay Guardian After Dark in their nightlife section reviewing, actually, that show at Berkeley Square. And it says, guitarist Ray Cooper, like Lobardo and Stevenson, can actually play his instrument, plunging tightly coiled leads in between the blistered chords.
0: Yeah, well, this song and even the next song in particular, I mean, they this style between the bass and guitar it inspired thousands of bands that were to come
1: oh big time man like in that interview they talk about toby morse the the host it flat out says like everyone talks about the ramones being influential on in pop punk which of course they were but the descendants are 1000% the biggest influence on what became for better or worse pop punk
0: mm-hmm Case in point is the next track, right?
1: Yeah. So Get the Time, written by Milo, considered by some to not just be the greatest Descendant song, but one of the greatest songs by any band ever. Uh, Robert Hecker of Red Cross, here's a quote from him. I regularly lump it in my top three greatest songs in pop music of all time with Hey Jude and Under Pressure. It's a perfect song. And maybe if the album didn't have a toilet paper roll on the cover, it would have sold 20 million copies.
0: Yeah. Or a toilet paper roll on the back cover too.
1: Yeah. Here's Milo. I wrote it in Boston while on tour in 85-86. I remember I couldn't sleep one night, so I stayed up all night and worked out the chords in the stairwell of whatever punker pad we were crashing at. Being on tour meant being separated from, from my girlfriend at the time and missing her, so that's where the lyrics come from.
0: And you like Sour Grapes better than this track, hey?
1: Oh yeah. Sour grapes is my favorite descendant song, but I mean, this yeah. is an amazing song for sure. I mean, yeah. what is there to say about it? Like, like Robert Hecker said, it's a perfect song. Everything about it, the playing, the lyrics, the vocals, the production, everything is just amazing. It's true. All right. And then we've got Orgo Fart credited to the whole band. And I remember hearing this for the first time and just laughing so hard because me and my friends did this. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: it's also like the fake name for it. Carbuncle. Yes. It, it kind of goes with Orgo Fart too, yeah. I would suspect. Yeah. Yeah.
1: This is, uh, only on the SST version and I had this on cassette. So definitely I'm used to hearing this close outside one, uh, of the album. So first of all, I asked Milo what an Orgo is and he unsurprisingly, it's a bill term, um, referring to any proggy jam that the band would do. Hmm. So this
0: is like Descendants prog rock. Yeah. Okay.
1: Here's Milo. Argo Fart basically came about because Doug and I had written in joy and Bill said, we should put some real farts on the song. So he started capturing farts on a cassette tape, usually after we had eaten Mexican food. At this Mexican joint around the corner from the recording studio, I bought a bunch of burritos to enhance our recording of enjoy vocals that day my recollection is that bill farts had the best sound due to the unique embouchure he obtained with his butt think <laughs> think of the neck of a balloon being <laughs> stretched whilst air is expelled
0: <laughs> embouchure yeah
1: so mainly his mainly his were used on the actual recording the rest of the farts were outtakes made up and made up the song orgo fart along with the stuff at the end, which was Ray, Doug, and Bill trying to record a phone message while drunk and waving around their penises. So, to this day, I still don't know what all is being said uh, in, that record, in that answering machine part, but it still makes me laugh every time I hear it. The, you know, the nasty old cock and the wrinkled little piece of shit and all that stuff. Um, here's Milo again, though. Bill recently had me compile lyrics for all of our songs to put up on Spotify, like if you a lot of bands Ryan when you go on Spotify you can click a little button and the lyrics come up. Oh yeah. And they kind of just scroll through it as the long as the song plays. Milo says and I decided to transcribe words for or, Orgo fart. <laughs> he goes, okay, that's okay, that's funny. Yeah, he goes I've pasted them in below and it, it's just hilarious like he, he even like pretty accurately transcribed the fart sounds with words like brip and "and <laughs> poot <laughs> um, uh, and uh, that answering machine part they also use that on on Hurt and Crew as like a backing track alright flipping flipping it over to uh, the song Cheer this is a Bill song right up there with My age, Bike age, Silly Girl Good Good Things, Camage She Loves Me One More Day not to mention all of the amazing all songs that he wrote. This is just one of those songs that the Descendants legend was built around. Uh, I didn't ask Milo too much about this song. It, it's a very personal song, obviously. Um, Bill's just iconic drumming with those snare rolls, that part with the minor chords that's kind of at the end of the chorus, the I don't want to spend the rest of my days in yesterday's daydream. Amazing. What an anthem. This was our ballot result pick for the Hall Raker episode, actually. Here's what Milo did tell me about this song. Cheer was my favorite song on the album. I think I contributed a little bit to the vocal melody, That's About It, another Bill masterpiece.
0: Totally agree.
1: And then 80s Girl, another Bill song. Much like the I Don't Want to Grow Up song, Ace, um, which Bill wrote, this is an unsung classic. This this one and like pep talk could have been on, on summary. I've always loved this song. I'd agree too. Okay, I asked Milo about it, and specifically if they played it live. He goes, we didn't play it live very much after Enjoy came out, maybe a few times. That one was fun because I helped Bill write the lyrics, half of the first verse, all of the second verse. I also remember sitting with Bill in the park behind my house and coming up with the backing harmonies in the chorus that are offset from the lead voice while singing along to the unfinished track. Very cool that he mentions that. Um, I definitely think that the way they do the backing vocals makes this song stand out.
0: Oh yeah, that's the part that I sing along with.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Milo goes on, most of my favorite memories of songwriting involve Bill and I with either a tape recorder or instruments sharing some creative moments. I love Ray's playing on this song. Uh, The great melodic solo, again, the the palm muting and the verses with those kind of accents on the riffs. Mm-hmm. I feel like you know, like you said that that style of playing had a huge unrecognized influence or uncredited influence on on what became pop punk. totally okay, the next one is green, written by Milo and Doug. Another one Doug uh, brought up that he says he he wrote on his Spanish guitar. Another seriously underrated descendant song. I've always considered these kind of last songs. Uh, buried on side two to kind of be their my war side two in a sense. They're darker, heavier, lyric- the, last,
0: the last three. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, 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 I'm with you.
1: Yeah, lyrically, this one is very kind of dark. And I asked Milo about that as well as uh, who shares the vocals with him in the second verse. Check this out. This is super interesting, Ryan.
0: I thought this song was about money always. What's it about? It is
1: about money. You know, you're seeing green, I'm yeah, seeing yeah. red. So check yeah. this out. That's Bill doing the second vocal on green. A weird thing about that one, the song is actually about Bill, which you can see if you just add a comma to the second line of the song. You'd sell your soul for a dollar, Bill. (laughs) The story is back in 1985, band merch wasn't such a big deal. Bands would sell t-shirts and that was about it. But Bill was interested in making all kinds of Descendants merch, like skateboards, underwear, coffee cups, etc. And my response was to be a self-righteous, sanctimonious prick about it, going off about punk rock purity and the like. What possessed me to go so far as to write a song excoriating my best friend, I'll never know. What still blows me away to this day is that Bill just shrugged his shoulders and forged ahead with the song, even singing some verse lines by himself, lines that were about him i know he knows it's about him but we have not discussed how he felt about it to this day and of course it turns out i was just jealous of bill as the last verse details what a bitter small-minded child i was back then and bill was right in the end i mean who doesn't love their circa 1986 bonus cup merch rules So that's pretty insane. Milo's honesty is, you know, super mind-blowing. I think he's being pretty hard on himself. uh, Just a few years later, you know, the punk and indie scene just became completely obsessed with the concept of selling out and, you know, with maximum rock and roll and all that kind of stuff, leading the charge. I'm sure we all participated in that to some degree, just young anti-capitalist idealism.
0: But I'm I'm not surprised at all though to hear that from Milo because that is one of the signature attributes of everything that Milo says or sings is that there's no filter. Yeah. Right? And, and he just kind of goes with, you know, what, how he feels, you know, what's driving him, what's moving him. And, you know, and I mean, again, it, it kind of gets back to, the fact that you have to let people change over time.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, this, this, these lyrics are, you know, on one hand, kind of unfortunately, like, you know, they are preserved in amber for all time, you know, yeah. but you have, you have to keep in mind the context in which these were written. And, um, yeah, I guess, you know, there's definitely some punk holier than thou, you know, throughout. All of punk rock history, right?
1: Oh, well, I mean, it wasn't long after this, Fugazi was touring and carried zero merch intentionally. Like, I don't think a band touring in 2023 could survive on the road without merch.
0: No. Yeah. No.
1: And, and I mean, like the song itself fucking rules. So Bill was right, not only about the merch, but also about shrugging his shoulders and just pushing forward with the song.
0: Yeah. I'm sure Bill could probably see the humor in it
1: as yeah. well. Yeah. Right? Okay, then we have Days or Blood, uh, credited to the whole band. This is heavy. It's weird. Apparently, it's orgo. Now that we know what that term means, <laughs>
0: yeah, this is this is totally orgo. <laughs>
1: yeah, eight minute epic. Uh, they got a lot of criticism in the album reviews for this song, but I just love it. Always have. I love when they go outside of their two minute pop song zone, you know, and do stuff like Iceman and and a lot of the stuff on like All Roy Saves, for example.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You can kind of see picture the band jamming this out in the practice pad and then Michael uh, Milo coming up with the lyrics like it just seems like the kind of thing a band would create together in a room
0: yeah I'm not surprised at all to hear you know uh Ray Cooper Swa play on this song or descendants who are playing with all these crossover bands do this song Um, and it it fits man it's the right place for it too when you were talking about sequencing this is the right place for this song on this record
1: Yep, totally uh, I read the lyrics being about you know the soul destroying nine to five world and, and Milo kind of confirmed that you know days are blood because they all bleed into one another and the nights the nights are blood too because of what's going on in the world is keeping you know the narrator up at night. That fire part at the end is just insane. Milo must have just totally shredded his voice recording that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I asked him if they ever played this live, and he said, I checked with Bill, and he says we played it live a handful of times back in 1986. And uh, there are virtually no live bootlegs from 86, at least not that I, I've ever found. There's some from 85 and lots from 87, but I would love to hear a recording of them playing this live. Yeah. Here's Milo Days Are Blood was Doug's music. I had some pseudo-poem that I co-opted for the lyrics. I was working long hours at a biotech firm in San Diego while going to school, and I guess I was kind of burned out, hence the working stiff lyrics. Dumb lyric, but it gave me the opportunity to scream fire over and over in homage to the great Ronnie James Dio. Whoa. (laughs) Like, that's... like. That might be the greatest moment for me in the history of this podcast, Ryan. Is getting that... Having that... Milo reference Dio. Yeah. <laughs> Can you even appreciate like how awesome that is for me?
0: For you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. That's <laughs> that's two worlds coming together yes. for Brandt. I get it.
1: Yeah. Okay, and then it just closes out with Orgo 51. Again, credited to the whole band. This is an SST-only track. It's one and a half minutes. I've always assumed this was recorded in the practice pad which uh, milo confirmed that it was Uh, it was actually bill who confirmed that this was recorded in the practice room at in lomita definite flag dirge with some heavy feedback and a flanger Uh, it adds to the darkness of side two and uh, i just love the sequencing of this album here's again from that press kit ryan this is from the la times uh, sunday september 7th 1988 descendants enjoy With a roll of toilet paper on the cover and a title track dedicated to bizarre bathroom fetishes, this album shows no signs that these South Bay punkers are ready to concede to the pressures of adulthood. In fact, their irreverent quartet seems to be receding farther into the Animal House wing of the hardcore movement. Full of lowbrow frat humor, Enjoy is not an album for feminists, socialites, or anybody who'd be offended by lyrics about spilling innards on my dreams but this lp will appeal to those taken by spirited thrash and catchy power punk pop any band that can brew both a tasty revved up version of the beach boys wendy and a seven minute dorsian psychodrama that would make henry rollins envious deserves applause listen and enjoy that's by john matsumoto The artwork, Ryan, this might be the, other than the Dio reference, this might be the most amazing nug I got from Milo. He told me, the album was originally going to be called I Stepped in Shit, and Bill actually took photos of a girl's foot stepping in shit for the album cover. Instead, we went with the stealth concept of a happy new wave cover image, urging the listener to enjoy. The shit was inherent in the music. No need to rub it in. (laughs)
0: Aye, aye, aye.
1: <laughs> uh the artwork is by Ray Cooper under the pseudonym of Scoob Druins. Again, a lot of the critics panned it for kind of going all in on the on the potty humor. Pun intended. You know, previously to this they kind of just flirted with the with potty humor. This you know, this one is full tilt. Um I'd say the artwork is considered to be pretty iconic now.
0: Yes, for sure.
1: Yeah. You've got, like you mentioned, the, the back cover with the the fake song titles like Floater, 50-50, Sausage, Barnacle, etc. cetera, Choda. Here's what's interesting, Ryan, the, those fake song titles. If you look at the New Alliance version, it has the two extra fake song titles, Orgo Fart and Orgo 51. Like those tracks aren't on that release, but they're listed on there. And so I'm assuming that's where the those song titles actually came from.
0: Yeah, likely.
1: Yeah. If you look on the the CD version on the back cover, instead of the Lomita address that's on the New Alliance version, it's got all Central um, listed, Brookfield, Missouri. So by the time the the CD came out in 91, I think the band had moved to Brookfield, Missouri, um, which they did around 1991.
0: Yeah, I hadn't put that together. So the back of my LP... Says Brookfield on it, so I've got a post ninety one pressing of this on vinyl.
1: Yep, yeah, and I don't think they actually lived there that long, so I think uh, they were there for Percolator, if I'm remembering right. Uh, the The lyrics are kind of repressed inside the the booklet. Um, the photo, it looks like they're sitting on a, a hood of a car. Um, when you might even be a cop car. Looks like you can. Maybe see some lights. If you if you look inside the cassette version, you can actually see that they're they're sitting in in front of a donut shop. If you can see the full full photo, okay. I love how they're all wearing sweats. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Ray and Ray and Milo looking kind of kind of creepy. I would say so. The new alliance version. Uh, they say um, they. They, I guess it's the thank you list. They thank Matt Rector for all-purpose kill demolition. He was their sound tech and, and manager, I believe. And then it says Laurel for Orgo Logistics Coordination, whatever that is. There's Dead Wax, Ryan, on the new Alliance LP. Side one says, you took my picture. And side two says, half point. Wow, cool. I wonder why that got lost along the way. Yeah. Ballot
0: result? Yeah, man. Ballot result. I'm gonna say this is a Brant pick for sure. I mean, most of the tracks that I would go for, we've also picked before. Like my, I'm gonna say my top four, maybe five would be Wendy, Sour Grapes, Get the Time, Cheer, and '80s Girl. Those would be my top. Yeah, yeah. We've picked a few of those already.
1: Yeah, I could do any one of these songs. We've all already done Sour Grapes and Cheer, and I'm I'm thinking the reason we did sour the sour grapes live version is because we knew we were going to do get the time like you have to do get the time
0: okay yeah i'm in yeah
1: all right hey thanks to brian probart for being on the show and especially thanks to milo for sending all that stuff in
0: yeah for sure what a cool way for us to kick off the 90s almost hey on sst the 90s oh my god
1: yeah hey ryan what's next week or whenever we get to it we full disclosure we might be taking a week off we haven't decided yet
0: (laughs) Yeah, we've got to have a board meeting. Yeah. But next episode, whenever that comes out, it's going to be SST 243. The No Man is Roger Miller record, Win Instantly. Very cool.
1: Yeah. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com.